Prepare for the inevitable. The four last things in the Fatima message. A conference given by Matthew Pleese at the 2019 Army of Advocates Conference in Houston, Texas, hosted by the Fatima Center. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Reverend fathers, esteemed guests and friends, I'm grateful for the opportunity to address you today and to present this talk on the four last things and the Fatima message. Indeed, as we prepare to begin the great and holy fast of 40 days and to celebrate the mystery of the Lord's resurrection, there is hardly a better time, I believe, to reflect on death, judgment, heaven, hell, and purgatory. Some of the topics I'm going to share with you today are going to be difficult to hear. You're not going to want to hear them. They're going to be painful. But it's what Catholics need to hear today because so few people are talking about it in our church. In my talk with you today, I'm hoping to do three things. First, I'd like to examine and remind all of you on the key dogmas of the faith as it concerns the four last things and to present them as a useful meditation for us. Secondly, I'm hoping in a special way to highlight the importance of the four last things to the fat and the message. And thirdly, I'm hoping to inspire all of you to have before your eyes each and every single day, but especially during this season of Lent, the certainty of your own death and what you can do to save your own souls and those of others. I will die. You will die. This is a known certainty. I will one day be at judgment. You will one day be at judgment yourself. Let us stop putting off preparation for what we know with complete certainty will one day happen to each of us. Be ready, for the Lord may very well be near to call you to judgment within the next few years or months or days or maybe even yet today you will be called to judgment. We do not know. But if I may, a little bit of background on myself for those who I have not had the pleasure to introduce myself to yet. I've been involved in Catholic action and catechesis now for about the, about the 15 or so years. In 2005, I started the online blog of Catholic Life, which I still run to this day. And in 2010, based on my writing of that blog, I was elected the president of catechismclass.com, an online-based uh, religious education course provider. Since taking over that organization, which was founded by Father James Zadlava, uh, a priest who recently passed away in Pennsylvania, our apostolate began to offer a number of programs ranging from online uh, courses for adults, for catechumens or lifelong Catholics, uh, children's faith formation courses uh, for parishes, for families, a best-selling godparent uh, preparation class, elective courses. We really like to cover the whole gamut of catechesis it's because we believe that in order to pass on true doctrine to others, we have to learn it ourselves first. It only makes sense. We've taken a, a defiantly traditional stance over the years, and we've thankfully, by the grace of God, been able to reach um, double digits in, in growth in numbers of people served for the past eight years. People want strong catechesis. People want the faith. We, we feel robbed when it's, you know, we go our whole lives and we, we hear, like, how did I not know that? How did somebody not tell that to me? The information that I'm privileged to share with you today is based uh, on a course that we offer called Eschatology, um, as well as a book that I authored on the same topic called Eschatology, The Catholic Study of the Four Last Things. Um, because we can't cover everything in an hour. For your reference after this talk and to dive deeper than we can cover in that hour, I encourage you to explore either the online self-study course or the book, uh, both of which you can find online, both of which are under $20 each. So eschatology. What is eschatology? It is the study of the end of life, the end of times, the final coming of Christ. In eschatology, 
Christian theology focuses primarily on the four last things. They are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. In addition to these four today, we'll also explore purgatory, the place of temporary purification after death for souls that die in the state of grace who are destined for heaven but are not yet perfect and able yet to enter heaven. We begin with death. Memento mori, remember, you must die. When I say the word death, what comes to mind? We surely have all concepts or images that come to our mind, but what is death? What does it mean? What is the definition? Death is the separation of the soul and the body. Death is the result of Adam and Eve's sin, but it is not the end of life. Death is the transformation, the door to life everlasting. Death is real. All mankind must undergo death, even heretics, the pagans, everybody acknowledges this. We are to be reminded of this very soon on Ash Wednesday, when we receive ashes on our foreheads and the reminder, remember man, you are dust, and unto dust you will return. Yet so many of us suffer from pride or envy or lust, when in fact we're all going to be reduced to ashes in so short a time. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, who did not have to undergo death because he was sinless since he is God, chose to undergo death to bring about the salvation of mankind. When we profess in the creed that Christ died, what we are saying is that his body and his soul separated. That is what death is. And it is also widely believed at the end of the Blessed Mother's sinless life before her assumption of body and soul into heaven, that she too experienced death like her son, the separation of her body and her soul. Regarding death, there are two points that I'd like to consider today. First, the terrors of death. And secondly, the assaults of Satan at the hour of our death. First, the terrors of death. Why do we fear death? Why do even Christians who have so much to hope for in the resurrection and in life everlasting fear the separation of our souls and bodies? However old a man may be, however broken in health, however miserable his circumstances, the thought of death is an unwelcome one. And there are three principal reasons why all sensible people fear death. First, the dread of death is inherent in human nature. Secondly, because every rational being is well aware that death is bitter and the separation of soul and body cannot take place without suffering. And thirdly, because no one knows whether he will go after death or how he will stand in judgment. Everyone shrinks instinctively from death because it is bitter and painful beyond description to our human nature. The soul of man is subject to many anxieties, apprehensions, sorrows, and the body is subject to pain and sickness of all kinds, yet none of these pains can be compared to the agony of death. A man who loses his good name and his property, everything he has, his family, has the most immense acute grief, but he does not die of it. All suffering all sickness, all grief and anguish, however terrible, is less bitter than death. Hence we see death to be a mighty monarch, the most cruel, the most relentless, the most formidable enemy of all mankind. Look at a man wrestling with death, and you will see how the tyrant overpowers him, disfigures him, prostrates his victim. But why is death so hard, so terrible a thing? It is because the soul has to separate itself from the body. Body and soul were created for each other. And so intimate is their union that a parting between them seems almost impossible. They would endure almost anything rather than to be torn apart. The soul is fearful of its future and of the unknown land to which she is going. The body is conscious that as soon as the soul departs from it, it will become the prey and the food of worms. 
Consequently, the soul cannot bear to leave the body, nor the body depart from the soul. Body and soul desire their union to remain unbroken and together to enjoy the sweets of life. And this is the primary reason why for all men that death is so abhorrent. Even our Lord Jesus Christ in his human nature feared death, and that is one of the principal reasons he suffered so much in his true agony in the garden. We think of it like, mm, yeah, he, he was sad, you know, he, no, he was going to die. No, he was agony. It was an actual physical condition of such agony that he actually bled blood out of, out of, um, out of his body. In one of the epistles to St. Augustine, St. Cyril, Bishop of Jerusalem, relates what was told to him by a man who had been raised from the dead himself. Amongst other things, this man said, quote, The moment when my soul left my body was one of such awful pain and distress that no one can imagine the anguish I endured. If all the conceivable sufferings and pain were put together, they would be as nothing in comparison with the torture I underwent at the separation of my soul and my body. End quote. And to emphasize his words, he added, addressing St. Cyril, quote, Thou knowest that thou hast a soul, and thou knowest not what it is. Thou knowest that beings exist called angels, but thou art ignorant of their nature. Thou knowest also that there is a God, but thou canst not comprehend his being. And so it is with everything that has not corporeal shape. Our understanding just does not grasp these things. In like manner, it is impossible for thee to understand how I could endure such intense agony in so short a moment. End quote. And if some people pass away, you know, seemingly peacefully, it's because nature, exhausted by suffering, has no longer the force to struggle with death. We know from the testimony of our Redeemer himself that no agony is like the agony of death. Although throughout the whole course of his sorrowful passion, he was tortured in a terrible manner. Yet all the martyrdom he endured was not to be compared with what he suffered at the moment of his death. This we gather from the Gospels themselves. Nowhere do we find that at any point of his life, the greatness of the pains he bore exhorted from our Lord a cry of anguish. But when the moment came for our blessed Lord to expire and the ruthless hand of death rent his heart asunder, we read that he cried out with a loud voice and then gave up the ghost. Hence, it is evident that at no period of the passion did Christ suffer so acutely as at the most painful separation of his sacred soul from his blessed body. In order that mankind might at least in some measure understand how terrible was the death Christ died for us, he ordained that we, at our end, should taste something of the bitterness of death and experience the truth of the following words of Pope St. Gregory, quote, Christ's conflict with death represented our last conflict, teaching us that the agony of death is the keenest agony that man has ever felt or will ever feel. It is the will of God that man should suffer so intensely at the close of his life in order that we may recognize and appreciate the magnitude of Christ's love for us, the inestimable benefit he conferred on us by enduring death for our sakes. For it would have been impossible for man to fully know the infinite love of God unless he too had drunk to some extent of the bitter chalice which Christ drank. End quote. That was from Pope St. Gregory. In this passage from Pope's, uh, Pope Gregory, we're taught that Christ ordained that all men in the hour of their dissolution should suffer the like pains which Christ suffered for us in his last agony in order that we might gain some knowledge by their own experience of the terrible nature of the death he endured for us and the great price he paid for our ransom. How terrible, how painful, how awful death will be for all of us if our death is in any degree to resemble Christ's most agonizing death. How severe a conflict is before us. 
what torments await us at that hour, one is almost inclined to think that it would have been preferable never to have been born than to be born to suffer such anguish. But it is thus that heaven is to be won, and through this narrow gate alone we enter into paradise. We as Christians accept our destiny cheerfully and form a steadfast resolution to bear unmurmingly the bitterness of death. Secondly, let me comment on the assaults of Satan at the hour of our death. Although death is in itself most bitter, its bitterness is greatly enhanced by, one, the vivid remembrance of the sins of our life. Two, by the thoughts of the judgment to come. Three, of the eternity before us. And four, by the assaults of Satan himself. At that moment, we will wish that we have had more fruitful lens, more penance in our life, more confessions, more charity for God and our fellow man. I'd like to review with some examples each of these four things and also indicate some means of combating the fears they inspire. With regard to the assaults of Satan, know that the all-just God permits him to have great power to assail us at the hour of death, not indeed for our perdition, but for our probation. This is one reason we consistently beg our Blessed Lady to intercede for us at the hour of death. Before expiring, the Christian has yet to prove that nothing can avail to make him forsake his God. For this reason, the evil enemy employs all the power he has received and brings all his forces to bear upon a man when he is dying in the hopes of causing him to sin and thrusting him down to hell. During our whole lifetime, he attacks us fiercely and neglects no means where he may deceive us. But all of these persecutions do not bear comparison with the final onslaught with which he endeavors to overcome us at that last moment, his final chance. Then he raves and rages like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, as the office of conscience says at the end of each day. This we learn as well from the passage in the book of the Apocalypse, 12.12. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil is come unto you, having great wrath, knowing that he hath but a short time. These words bear a special application to the dying, against whom the devil conceives a great wrath, and whom he makes every effort to seduce. For he knows full well that if we do not fall at that moment, we will, that's his last chance, that's it. Here, uh, what St. Gregory says on this point, quote, Consider well how terrible is the hour of death and how appalling the remembrance of our evil deeds will be at that time. For the spirits of darkness will recall all the harm they have done us and remind us of the sins we have committed at their instigation. They will not go to the deathbed of the godless only, but they will be present with the elect, striving to discover something sinful whereof to accuse them. Alas, how will it fare with us hapless mortals in that hour? And what can we say for ourselves, seeing how innumerable are the sins to be laid to our charge? What can we answer to our adversaries when they place all our sins before us with the object of reducing us to despair? End quote. The evil spirits will tempt their unhappy victim at the moment of death on various points but especially in regards to the sins in which they have most frequently fallen. If during lifetime he, uh, the, the dying man, has cherished hatred towards one, they will conjure up before his dying eyes the image of that person, rehearsing all he can do to injure him in order to revive the flame of hate towards the enemy or enkindle it anew. Or if anyone has transgressed against purity, they will show him the accomplice of his sin and strive to awaken the guilty passion felt for that individual. If he has been troubled with doubts concerning the faith, they recall to his mind the article of belief which he had difficulty in accepting and representing it as untrue at that last moment. If the man who has sinned through pride and boasts of his good works, they seek to ensnare him by flattery, assuring him that he stands so high in the sight of God in favor and that he has done all things so he cannot possibly fail to secure heaven. 
And if in his lifetime a man has given way to impatience, allowing himself to be angry and irritated by every trifle, they make his illness appear most irksome to him, that he may become impatient and rebel against God for having sent this upon him so awfully at the end. Or if he has been tepid and lacking in devotion, they try to maintain in his soul the state of apathy, suggesting to him that physical weakness is just too great to allow him to even join in the prayers his friends are reading to him. Finally, they tempt those who have led a godless life and repeatedly fallen into mortal sin to despair, representing their transgressions to be so great as to be past any hope of forgiveness. But the devils do not always confine themselves to tempting a man in regard to his chief faults and his predominant failings. They frequently tempt him to sins of which he has not been guilty. These diabolical agents from hell spare no pain to deceive the dying. And if they fail in one way, they will try another and another and another. These temptations are of no ordinary character. Why do we pray so often to Mary to pray for us at the hour of death throughout our life so many times if something bad was not happening at that hour? They are sometimes so violent, these temptations, that it would be impossible for weak men to resist them without supernatural assistance. It is all that anyone in good health can do to withstand the assaults of the devil. And even such a one is often overcome by them. How much more difficult it must be for one who is encumbered by sickness to struggle against foes so formidable. And it is for this reason I ask you now and throughout this whole of the upcoming holy season of Lent to pray each day for the souls of the sick and the dying. Please, for the souls of the sick and the dying this Lent. Pray that they have the grace to resist these awful temptations. Pray for those in their last agony to be reconciled with the church, lest they pass through death as an enemy of God. With your families, I suggest visiting a hospital once this Lent, visiting people there if you can, but above all, praying for those who are sick and suffering there. Pray for their health, yes, but most of all, pray for them to resist the attacks of the devil and to save their souls. In order to prepare ourselves before our last illness to combat these temptations, there is an old prayer that I recommend, and it goes as follows. O Jesus, compassionate Redeemer of mankind, I recall to mind the threefold temptation thou didst undergo from the evil enemy, and I pray thee through thy glorious victory thou didst obtain over him to stand by me in my last conflict and fortify me against all his temptations. I know that in my own strength I cannot contend against such a powerful foe, and I must assuredly be vanquished unless thou or thy blessed saints grant me timely assistance. Therefore I now earnestly implore thy help and that of thy saints, and propose to arm myself to the best of my ability by thy grace to meet the temptations that will await, we, that will await me. I promise now before thee and the holy angels and the blessed saints that I will never voluntarily expose myself to any temptation of whatever nature it may be, but with the help of thy grace to combat it most vigorously. Amen. And thus, after death, comes judgment. Judgment, the second of the four last things, above and beyond all that we have considered already as contributing to make death terrible to us, is the thought that we must stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account of all we have done and left undone. And how awful this judgment is going to be. We learn these from the words of St. Paul himself. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31 For if it is very alarming already even to fall into the hands of an angry man, how much more terrible it will be to fall into the hands of an omnipotent God? All the saints trembled in anticipation of the sentence that would be passed to them by God, for they knew well how exceedingly severe his judgments are. The psalmist says, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, O Lord, for in thy sight no living man is justified. And holy Job exclaimed, What shall I do if God arise to judge me? 
What am I that I should answer him? I cannot answer him one for a thousand. We read also in the lives of the fathers that the holy abbot Agathon was overwhelmed with fear as his end drew near. His brethren said to him, Why shouldest thou be afraid, reverend father? Thou hast led so pious a life. But he answered them, quote, The judgments of God are very different from the judgments of man. The holy abbot Elias uses to say likewise, quote, There are three things that I fear, only three things. First, I dread the moment when my soul has to leave my body. Secondly, the moment when I must stand before the tribunal of God. Thirdly, the moment when sentence is passed upon me. End quote. For indeed, besides the general judgment, there is nothing so much to be feared as these three things. All good and holy men who fear them, all do fear them. Those who do not fear them prove that they know very little about them or they have meditated very scarcely upon them. Consider, first of all, what a strange new sensation this will be for your soul when she finds herself separated from the body in an unknown world. Now, for the first time, her eyes are opened, and she sees clearly what eternity is, what sin really is, what virtue is, how infinite is the being of the Almighty God, and how wondrous is her own nature. All this will appear so marvelous to her that she will be almost petrified with astonishment. After the first instance of wonder, she will be conducted before the tribunal of God that she may give an account of all of her actions and the terror that will then seize upon the unhappy soul surpasses our powers of conception. It is so fearful for a criminal to be brought before an earthly judge. How can we understand the terror of a soul when she's introduced into the presence of God, the strict and all-knowing judge and required to give the most accurate account of all her thoughts, words, deeds, and omissions of her past life. I think about people I know, and they're like, you know, can you pray for me? I've got a traffic court appearance today, and they're really worried. People worried about an earthly judge. Imagine what this is going to be. You can't lie. He knows what you did. He knows what you didn't do. And he's the one you actually offended. Holy Job acknowledges this as well when he says, quote, Who will grant me this, that thou mayest protect me in hell and hide me till thy wrath pass? Observe that even the patient Job would rather lie in a darksome pit and be concealed in a gloomy, somber cave than appear before the countenance of an angry God. There are six things which strike terror into the soul when she is summoned to the particular judgment. One, the soul fears because she knows her judge to be omniscient, that nothing can be concealed from him, nor can he in any way be deceived. Two, because her judge is omnipotent, nothing can withstand him, and no one can escape from him. Three, because her judge is not merely the most just, the most just but the strictest of all judges to whom sin is so hateful that he will not allow the slightest transgression to go unpunished. Four, because the soul knows that God is not her judge alone, but also her accuser, she has provoked him to anger. She has offended him, and he will defend his honor and avenge every insult offered to it. Five, because the soul is aware that the sentence once uttered is irrevocable. There is no appeal to a higher court. It is useless for her to complain of the sentence. It cannot be reversed. It will never be reversed. Whether adverse or favorable, she must accept it. And six, the most powerful reason of all why the soul fears to appear before the judgment seat is because she knows not what the sentence of the judge will be. And she has far more cause to fear than to hope. And all thought of help is over. Consider furthermore in what form you will appear before your judge. If a man in punishment of his evil deeds were sentenced to be stripped to the skin in the presence of a whole multitude of persons, how greatly ashamed he would feel. Thus it will be with you and with me 
before the judge in the presence of the many hosts of angels. There are two judgments. The first of which is the personal judgment that each of us will have at the moment of our death. This judgment will determine our eternal destiny in either either heaven or hell. This is the one we've been discussing so far. There is a second judgment known as the last or final judgment at the end of the world. This judgment will not decide our own destiny like some falsely think. Um, The sentence we have received from God will not be reversed. Rather, at this time, the souls of all people in heaven or hell will be reunited with their bodies and the sins of all people will be made known to everyone else in the world. While some theologians debate if the sins of the elect in heaven will also be revealed at the last judgment, most seem to believe that the sins of all, those in heaven and in hell, will be revealed. Everyone will know every sin committed by everyone else. Justice requires it. There, so why are there two judgments? The Baltimore Catechism explains, quote, There is need of a general judgment, though everyone is judged immediately after death, that the providence of God, which on earth often permits the good to suffer and the wicked to prosper, may in the end appear just before all men. The Catechism continues, quote, There are other reasons for the general judgment, and especially that Christ our Lord may receive from the whole world the honor denied him at his first coming, and that all may be forced to acknowledge him as their God and Redeemer. End quote. The Catholic Church teaches that at the time of the last judgment, Christ will come in all his glory, and all the angels with him, and in his presence the truth of each man's relationship with God will be laid bare, and each person who has ever lived will be judged with perfect justice. Those already in heaven will remain in heaven. Those already in hell will remain in hell. And those in purgatory will be released into heaven. After the last judgment, the universe itself will be renewed with a new heaven and a new earth. Catholics have always believed that Jesus Christ will come back to close the current period of human history on earth. This event is not to be confused with the particular judgment. The time when Christ will return is given many names. It's a common Protestant thing to talk about, the the day of the Lord, the end times, the second coming of Christ, all names for the same thing. The Bible describes the events of Jesus' return in apocalyptic images. It's important to know the final coming will be unmistakable because it will be accompanied by unprecedented signs. For just as lightning comes from the east and is seen as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24:27. Some signs are general events concerning the evangelization of the world. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24:14. Other signs are more proximate. Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21 all describe the unmistakable signs with apocalyptic images. The church also teaches that we should avoid pointless speculation about the time, the date. Some people argue about the day of the week. It doesn't matter. Will it be after five or six? Because, you know, after dinner would be better. I mean, I've heard that. We should ignore details of the signs, the nature of the difficulties. The church focuses instead on the need for living the gospel so as to be prepared for the end of times or our own particular judgment whenever it happens. doesn't matter when the end of times is. Be ready because you will probably be judged yourself before the end of times happens. In 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1 verses 13 to 16 Therefore, gird up the loins of your minds, live soberly, and set your hopes completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like obedient children, do not act in compliance with the desires of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy yourself in every aspect of your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. There exists among 
evangelical Protestants a popular but false belief uh, based on some passages of the scriptures called millennialism, which means a thousand-year reign. The rapture, you probably also heard of it, is another false Protestant belief, which is in direct contradiction, actually, to what the scriptures teach on the end of time, since they clearly teach it to be unmistakable. Not, it will happen, we won't know it, why did somebody disappear from dinner? It's not going to be like that. Some centuries before, there was some disagreement in the church, whether the just would go to the reward of heaven immediately after death, or if they must wait for the final judgment. This was settled by Pope Benedict XII. In 1336, Pope Benedict XII issued the papal bull Benedictus Deus, on the beatific vision of God. This papal bull, this papal bull dogmatically defined the church's belief that the souls of the departed go to their eternal reward immediately after death, as opposed to be remaining in a state of unconscious existence until the last judgment. As such, we are required as Catholics to absolutely believe this. The following is taken from that bull, quote, Moreover, we define that according to the general disposition of God, the souls of those who die in actual mortal sin go down into hell immediately after death and there suffer the pain of hell. Nevertheless, on the day of judgment, all men will appear with their bodies before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of their personal deeds so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. We spend so much time worrying, I do too, about things in this world. What are we going to have for dinner? What am I going to do tomorrow? What time should I leave? What time should I get up? Where should I go to school? Should I retire in five years? Should I retire in ten years? Where should I retire? What should I do for work? The list goes on, etc., etc. But how many a times do we ask ourselves, what will happen to me at judgment? Will I be condemned for all eternity? Will I suffer for hundreds of years in purgatory? Will my family know to have masses offered for me? Will I die in the state of mortal sin and go to hell and no number of masses will ever save me? Did I in my life frequent the sacraments and pray enough? Those are questions to ask ourselves this Lent as we try to reformulate our lives, as we try to make penance and sacrifice. Those are the questions we need to be asking ourselves. We should always have before us our judgment and ask ourselves daily, if I were to die today, would I be sentenced to eternal death and fire? Hell. Hell is a real and an actual place where souls that die in the state of mortal sin go. All too often in our modern era, people claim that either hell does not exist or it is not a place where souls go to for all eternity. The church, though, is clear in her teachings that hell exists, and it exists forever, and souls do indeed go there. In a homily on Sunday, March 25, 2007, Pope Benedict XVI said, Jesus came to tell us that he wants us all in heaven, and that hell of which so little is spoken of in our times exists and is eternal for those who close their hearts to his love. End quote. It's also far too common to think that only egregious or public sinners go there. Hitler's the only person there. You know, I've heard that before. <laughs> He's got the place to himself. Yet many people go to hell. Many do. Because they've neglected the faith and its practice. Our Lady at Fatima reminded us that many go to hell because no one prays for them. As our Lord himself said, the road to hell is wide and many follow it. Amongst those in hell are surely souls who have committed one mortal sin that they were just too ashamed to confess during their lives and for that sin alone, their soul was lost forever. Our Lord in the Gospels has said, that many souls are lost 
And the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary in our modern world, especially Fatima, have affirmed this. There is much that can be said on hell and in my online course on eschatology as well as the book, Eschatology, the Catholic Study of the Four Last Things. I go into far more detail than I can cover in our short time here, but I would like to highlight just a few of the harsh realities of hell. First, the fires of hell. We know that there really is fire in hell from the words Christ spoke to the wicked. Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. This shows that there is a real fire in hell and that in it the damned must burn eternally. What the intensity of that pain will be is beyond the power of man to depict. For of all the very kinds of physical suffering to which man can be subjected, there is none so great, so cruel, so agonizing as that which is caused by fire. The rack, the wheel, amputation of your limbs are all terrible, but they're not to be compared to the pain of burning. And far worse than burning here on this earth, the fire of hell will never cease for all eternity without end, forever. The dam will one day be cast body and soul into the huge and awful furnace of hell, into the immense lake of fire where they will be surrounded by flames. Picture, picture it. There will be fire below you. There will be fire above you. There will be fire all around. Every breath will be the scorching breath of a furnace. Now is the time for us to act in dependence and save our own souls and those of our friends and our family before it's too late. We still have time. These lines of the sequence from All Souls Day are at the forefront of my mind sometimes when I think about this, and the words in particular, Worthless are my prayers and sighing, yet, good Lord, in grace complying, rescue me from fires undying. Secondly, the souls in hell will suffer hunger and thirst for all eternity. Besides hunger, the damned suffer the most burning thirst, which is beyond the power of words to describe. Everyone knows how terrible are the sufferings caused by thirst. Those who are plagued by thirst will drink from the most impure sources. And if nothing at all can be obtained to quench their thirst, a lingering and painful death is evident. The thirst suffered by lost souls is infinitely greater, more intense, more painful than any thirst on earth, however great that may be. I'd like to, if you could picture yourself right now on the East Coast, on the beaches there, walking along, and I give you a job. Your job is to move the sand from that beach to Mount Everest, from the whole East Coast of the United States. But you have to do it one grain of sand at a time. You have to get in a boat. You have to be tossed about at sea. You must climb the mountain yourself, no harness, and you deposit it there. And then you return, and you do it until the beach is clear of the entire United States. How long do you think that would take? How many thousands of years would that take? That's what hell is like. Well, hell is actually worse, because you could do that exercise and actually complete it. You could do it ten times and complete it, but hell lasts forever. It's like doing that exercise in intense agony, never-ending. Thirdly, the foul odors of hell and the stench of suffering, including, most painfully of all, the perpetual rotting of your own bodies, which will never cease. Fourthly, the sounds of hell will include the most profane blasphemies and insults against our Lord, our Lady, and the saints. And our very companions will be the devil themselves, because we have no friends in hell. We will feel abandoned and alone forever. There is no companions in hell. The demons are the only ones we will know. Yet of all these pains, that which gives the most anguish, the most of all, is being deprived of the beatific vision of God 
you will never see him. You will never again feel his love. He gave you plenty of chances. You chose to do something else. That was your choice. So he said, okay, I will withdraw myself. And we will feel, if whoever is there will feel what it's like to actually have God withdrawn. It will never, the beatific vision will never be given to the damned to behold the divine countenance. They will no longer feel his love because they chose their sins rather than his law. And this pain will far outweigh all the other torments which I have mentioned. Even those of us here who surely love our Lord and follow the traditional teachings of the Catholic Church are not immune. We must, as the scriptures say, work out our salvation in fear and trembling, lest we, after we have preached to others, should ourselves be cast away. St. Paul himself uses these same lines in 1 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Never neglect regular confession. That is the recourse we have. That is how we avoid this. This can be a frightening topic, and that's probably why a lot of priests don't like talking about it. But many souls have been saved by reflecting and meditating on the consequences of hell. In fact, the Council of Trent said in Canon 7 on Justification, if anyone says that the fear of hell is a sin or makes sinners worse, let him be anathema. Every day, an average of 290,000 people die, are judged, and begin an eternity of endless bliss or hopeless misery. One day, we will be amongst that number. But rather than focus on ourselves, how many of us feel a pull on our hearts, knowing that souls are dying eternally because there is no one to pray for them? There's only one way to get into hell, mortal sin. And how many of us would truly prefer physical death and suffering to mortal sin? Picture the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve are there, and the tree is in the middle. I think it's often easy for us to think, like, how were they so stupid? They had all these fruits and all these trees, and there was only one you couldn't eat from. And we think, well, if I was there, I mean, I would have known not to eat that one tree, right? There's plenty else going on around here. So I wouldn't have done it. But in our own lives, that tree is mortal sin. And all the fruit on it, is the, is the rotten fruit of the ways mortal sin manifests itself in our life. We might look at the apples and we think from the outside, that looks good. It feels good. I'll take that. That's okay. It's really okay. You know, I know. I'm looking at it. It's fine. Or that lust, that's okay. That abortion, that's okay. Because I, I could die. It's okay. I think a lot of people commit mortal sin because they think it's actually good. And then they bite the apple and it's rotten with worms. So how many times, if we were in that scenario, we would likely have fallen? Because we do. We fall too often. At Fatima, Our Lady revealed that demo devotion to her Immaculate Heart is a particular means that God wishes to save souls from hell. And this is the second of the three secrets of Fatima. At Fatima, Our Lady showed three children a terrifying vision of hell, then told them, You have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. If people do what I tell you, many souls will be saved, and there will be peace. Thus, devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary was revealed expressly to save souls. So how can Our Lady refuse to save souls? If we appeal to her immaculate heart, if a person, picture a person, if this person's conversion seems unlikely, let us not think about it, nor try to figure out a way to cleverly win them over, but let's confide them to the immaculate heart of Mary. We entrust to her the sinners we are praying for, especially if it's a relative of ours or our godchild, someone to whom we have special ties, using the following words, or even repeating this act many times throughout the day. Immaculate Heart of Mary, I entrust to thee the salvation of, insert name, 
having great confidence that thou wilt save him or her. So right now, picture somebody in your in your mind, in your life that needs this prayer right now. And pray this. Immaculate heart of Mary, I entrust to thee the salvation of having great confidence thou wilt save them. All is not without hope. We have hope. Hope in working out our salvation and those of our family and friends. And one of the means that should inspire us is the fact that we don't have to live our lives completely perfect. God in his generosity and his love has created purgatory. Since there is so much misunderstanding on purgatory, let's review a short definition. What is purgatory? This is taken from a Catholic dictionary in 1951. Quote, purgatory is the place and state in which souls suffer for a while and are purged after death before they go to heaven on account of their sins, venial sins which have never in life been remitted by an act of repentance or love or by good works, and grave sins, the guilt of which with its eternal punishment has indeed been removed by God after an act of repentance, but for which there is still a debt of temporal punishment due to his justice on account of the imperfection of that repentance, must be purged away after death by the pain of intense longing for God, whose blissful vision is delayed, and also, as is commonly taught, by some pain of sense inflicted probably by material fire, end quote. From the church's teachings, the Council of Florence, Quote, if they have died repentant for their sins and having love of God, but have not made satisfaction for things that they have done or omitted by fruits worthy of penance, then their souls after death are cleansed by the punishment of purgatory. Also, the suffrages of the faithful still living are efficacious in bringing them relief from such punishment, namely the sacrifice of the mass, prayers and almsgiving and other works of piety, which in accordance with the designation of the church are customarily offered by the faithful for each other, end quote. The Catechism of the Council of Trent, quote, among them is also the fire of purgatory in which the souls of just men are cleansed by a temporary punishment in order to be admitted into their eternal country into which nothing defiled entereth. The truth of this doctrine, founded as holy councils declare on scripture and confirmed by apostolic tradition, demands exposition and all the more diligent and frequently because we live in times when men endure not sound doctrine. End quote. And lastly, the Council of Trent also said, quote, prayers for the dead that they may be liberated from the fire of purgatory are derived from apostolic teachings. End quote. Mystics have also confirmed the existence of purgatory as well. One such passage that I've reflected on myself several times before is the following from Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, who wrote, quote, I was in purgatory tonight. It was as if I was being led into an abyss where I saw a large hall. It was touching to see the poor souls so quiet and sad, yet their faces revealed that they have joy in their hearts because of the recollection of God's loving mercy. On a glorious throne, I saw the Blessed Virgin more beautiful than I had ever beheld her. She said, I entreat you to instruct people to pray for the suffering souls in purgatory, for they certainly will pray much for us out of gratitude. Prayer for these holy souls is very pleasing to God because it enables them to see him sooner. End quote. So please, let us not let one day pass during this Lenten season in which we do not make pious prayers and offer some good works for the intention of the poor souls. Not one day. Our Lady asks it of us. In August of 1917, Our Lady of Fatima told the children, Pray much and make sacrifices for sinners, for many souls go to hell because no one makes sacrifices for them. It was in the same spirit that the angel of Fatima spoke to the children in 1916. Offer up everything in your power as a sacrifice to the Lord in reparation for the sins by which he is offended and in supplication for the conversion of sinners more than all else. Accept and bear with resignation the sufferings God may send you. 
For what greater charity and what more worthy work can we do now and for our Lent than by freeing souls from purgatory and making reparation for our own sins so that way we may one day experience the eternal happiness of heaven? Heaven. In stark contrast to all that we have mentioned so far at this point is the eternal happiness and bliss of heaven. Heaven, the fourth of the four last things, is the prize of so few. None of us deserve it. No one on this earth is worthy of all the joys of heaven. Yet our divine Redeemer chose to suffer the worst torments of death to show us how much he loved us and to open to us the possibility of an eternity of happiness with him, his mother, and the whole court of heavenly saints and angels. We must not, as some do, picture to ourselves heaven as a purely spiritual place. For heaven is a real place where God not only is, but the angels are now, and where Christ is also in his sacred humanity, in Our Lady with her human body. There, too, are all the blessed. They will dwell with their glorified bodies after the last judgment. We know that after the last judgment, the saints will behold heaven with their bodily eyes, and consequently, it will be a visible kingdom. Since God has created heaven for himself and for his elect, He has made it so beautiful and so glorious that the blessed will never tire of the contemplation of its splendors for all eternity. Concerning the size of heaven, we know it's immeasurable. One saint remarked, If God were to make every grain of sand into a new world, all these innumerable spheres would not fill the immensity of heaven that he has prepared for us. The church teaches us that in the office of martyrs, that each one of the elect will have his own place in the kingdom of heaven. I will give to my saints an appointed place in the kingdom of my Father. And King David in the psalm says, The saints shall rejoice in glory. They shall be joyful in their beds. We also have Christ's words himself. In my Father's house there are many mansions. Hence it may be inferred that each one of us, if we are lucky enough to be among the redeemed, has his separate abode in heaven. For as a just and prudent father divides his real and personal property amongst his children, assigning to each one his particular share, so our heavenly father apportions to each of his elect a part of his celestial treasures, both visible and invisible, giving to each one more or less according to the amount he deserves to receive. There will be different degrees of glory in heaven. Who shall describe the majesty and glory of these heavenly mansions? It's hard to contemplate. Meditate often, therefore, upon the things of heaven. Raise your eyes and your heart to the bright firmament above and awaken within your heart by this or other means a keen desire to one day behold those mansions of the Eternal Father, to enter them, to dwell in them. To be in heaven is to behold God and not die. That's what it means to be a saint to be amongst God, to see God and not die. Some people talk about the church making saints. The church canonizes saints, recognizes that they are in heaven. The church doesn't, by canonizing them, move them to heaven. They were already there. By this, she affirms that. And what that means to be a saint isn't necessarily you were a martyr, that you were a confessor, that you were a priest. It means that you see God and you do not die from the sight of God. In Her revelations to St. Bridget, the mother of God, once said, The saints stand around my son like countless stars, whose glory is not to be compared with any temporal light. Believe me, if the saints could be seen shining with the glory they now possess, no human eye could endure their light. All would be turned away, dazzled and blinded. Think about what happiness will be for you when your body will shine like the sun at midday. Everything that lives and that moves rejoices in the light and warmth of the sun. It gladdens all the face of the earth. In like manner, your body will be a joy and delight to yourself and to all in heaven because of its beauty and its joy. Indeed, the blessed in heaven will delight in all their senses. The power of sight will be so perfect that nothing can be hid from their eyes. They will see what is distant as distinctively as if it's near. The smallest object, as plainly as the largest, The dark will be to them as clear as light. 
their vision will be so undimmed that they will be able to gaze without the flinching at the sun, even were its lights a hundred times more dazzling. Their sight will also be so keen that no obstacle could offer a hindrance to it. And much can be said on the other senses and the other delights, which we just don't have the time to reflect on today. But let us not lose sight of that greatest joy of heaven, the ability to see God. Do we really want that? We spend so much time in earthly pursuits. Do we really want heaven? Are we really willing to do what's necessary to save our own souls and those of others? What if you just miss the mark? What if you just lose heaven? We lose heaven, we lose everything. And what does Christ say about the number of the elect? His words are grim. Bind his hands and his feet and cast him into the exterior darkness, for many are called, but few are chosen. And there are many other similar ones, of which I will quote one. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, we read that our Lord said, Enter ye into the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad that leadeth unto destruction, and many there are that go in it. How narrow is the gate, and straight is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there are that find it. In order that we may better appreciate the meaning of our Lord's words and perceive more clearly how few are the elect, observe that Christ did not say that there are few in number who walked in the path to heaven, but there were few who found that narrow way. How straight is the gate that leadeth unto life, and few there are that find it. It is as if the Savior intended to say, the path leading to heaven is so narrow and so rough, it's so overgrown, so dark, difficult to discern that there are so many who in their whole life long will never find it. And those who do find it are constantly exposed to the danger of deviating from it, of mistaking their way, of unwittingly wandering away from it because it's so over, overgrown, it's irregular, it's a hard road. Now because Christ knew that these words of his would be misinterpreted in understood in a false sense by both believers and unbelievers, on another occasion he accentuated and emphasized what he had already said concerning the small number of the elect. For when one of his disciples asked him, Lord, are they few that are saved? He answered and said, Strive to enter by the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, shall seek to enter and shall not be able. That's Luke 13:24. Listen to the words of the divine teacher. He bids us strive. Take trouble. Make use of all the powers in our being to enter into that narrow gate. So much can be said about heaven and the fewness of those saved. I just can't go into time today, so if you are interested, I would recommend the book, Eschatology, and the Catholic Study of the Four Last Things, or the course that I mentioned before, which would go into it. To conclude, though, I address to you with the words of the mother of the Maccabees, which she addressed to her youngest son, a mere boy when he was about to be tortured to death. Uh, as his six brothers had already been at that point, she said to him, My son, I beg thee, look up to heaven. So I say to you, look up to heaven every day, especially in times of trial and temptation. Heaven is well worth every suffering and every sacrifice and every combat required of us, and even a thousand times more. Life is short. Its trials and its sufferings, its labors, its crosses, they're short and transitory. But heaven and its joys are inconceivable, satiating every desire of the heart and never-ending. Just a few weeks ago on Septuagesima Sunday, we heard the words of St. Paul, Brethren, know you not that they run all in the race, all run indeed, but one receiveth the prize, so run that you may obtain. And every one that striveth for the mastery refraineth himself from all things, and they indeed that they may receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible one. This Lent, put life in perspective. Do you fast not as a means to the end for the purpose of saving your own soul and those of others? Do you actually make fitting reparation and fitting penances? So many people falsely say, you know, I'm going to give up dessert. Like, is that all you can do? In your prayers, are you honoring the message of Fatima and making prayers and sacrifices for sinners? Our Lady said that little Francisco would enter heaven, but he had to pray many rosaries. How many more rosaries do we need to pray for our sins if a small child had to do this?
pray for the poor souls each and every day this Lent, and let us never let one day pass when we do not beg Our Lady to pray for us now and at the hour of death. For we must prepare for the ineffable, for we are living on borrowed time. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org. Immaculate Heart of Mary, or Pronobis.